is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is, and then, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Second Kings 5, 1-16 Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and when she worked in the service, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife, she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and spoke, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, 
Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. The book of Acts, chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms to, generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, 
Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Well, you may have just noticed in our reading there that we had three stories of warriors who were Gentiles who uh, essentially came to Jesus. Of course, in the Old Testament, it was Naaman before the time of Jesus, but nevertheless, he believed in God. And then in Luke chapter 7, which we're going to be looking at today, uh, we have the story of a centurion who put his faith in Christ. And then later on in Acts, we again see a centurion who turned to Jesus Christ. And I believe that the Lord wants us to read these stories together, in a sense, that they all help us to interpret one another. And so that's part of what I hope to do in the message this morning. And so if you would, pray with me just briefly now that the Lord would bless this time of teaching of His Word. 
God, we know that it is by your word that we are built up. And as we see here in Luke 7, it is even by your word that we are healed, God. And so, Lord, I pray that as your word goes forward this morning, God, may your power go forward with it, Lord, to enliven heart, faith in each of our hearts, Lord, that we might believe in you as we should. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, the primary point of the passage before us this morning is found in verse 9 of Luke chapter 7. Verse 9 of Luke chapter 7. It says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, this phrase that Jesus spoke is, is a loaded phrase on a couple of levels. And so I want to spend most of our time this morning unpacking what this phrase means, that Jesus says that not even in Israel has he found such faith. But before we jump into unpacking that phrase, I just want to take a moment to connect the story that's written here this week with the teaching from the previous weeks. So in previous weeks, as we've been going through Luke chapter 6, we saw Jesus give a long section of teaching. And as we saw, this was primarily moral teaching. In other words, Jesus was telling us how we're to live, what we're to do. And as I summarized it last week, we said that mainly what Jesus is commanding us to be is he's commanding us to be joyful and generous and other-centered people. Now, if we we're understanding what Jesus was saying in these texts about who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, then we might expect that immediately following this teaching, we have some examples of people who are doing this, right? People who are following Jesus in this way. And yet, isn't it remarkable how the story that comes immediately following all this great moral teaching of Jesus is the story of a centurion who doesn't even think he's worthy to have Jesus come into his house? In other words, instead of showing us examples of how people listened to the words of Jesus and then they went out and did all that Jesus told them to do, instead we see this story of a man who had a sick servant and said, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof, as it says in verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And yet he trusts that Jesus has the power to heal. And so he says, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus indeed says the word, and the servant is healed. In other words, I think what we see in this story is that Jesus himself is the only one here who is perfectly depicting all that he has just commanded his, his followers to be. Jesus himself is joyful in serving. He is generous toward this man, and he is centered on this man and this man's servant's needs. We must see that in this story, we are in the position of this centurion, and we are in the position of his servant who are sick and who need Jesus's help. And so we must understand that in all the teaching that we've just been through of how we ought to live, it can actually be somewhat dangerous at times to simply look at God's commands, to simply look at how we are to live, because we in our flesh can then think that, oh, well, the Lord must just 
expect me to go out and do this. And then we run off and we try to be obedient to Christ's commands without considering that we are in need of Jesus' help. That we are in need of his restoration above every other need. And so that is where Luke, this gospel writer, again, draws our attention this morning. And so, again, we're going to look especially at verse 9, that not even in Israel have I found such faith. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Luke intends for us to see the statement as loaded in, in two different ways. First, it's loaded in the sense that Jesus is finding faith in someone outside of Israel that is to be an example to Israel. That is, in this verse, Jesus is fundamentally saying that the godliest man that he has witnessed, the one who is most faithfully worshiping God, is someone who is not even part of the people of God. The one who Jesus finds this great faith in is not even an Israelite. It's not someone who has the law of God and can keep the law of God. Indeed, it's someone who the Jews were not to associate with, as we read there in Acts chapter 10. And so the fact that this would be someone outside the people of God has great significance for us today. And then the second thing to notice is that Jesus is stunned by and is praising this man's faith. He's not praising the man's deeds. He's not praising the man's great works. And we have seen in this passage that there are works to be praised. This man has been a protector of God's people. He helped to build a synagogue. He cares for God's people. And yet this is not what Jesus chooses to praise. Jesus praises this man's great faith. And so the way that I want to put these two things together this morning and even put together Naaman and Luke and Acts is I want us to see that it is precisely because Jesus is most interested in faith that he is able to praise a non-Israelite. Or to put it in more practical terms for us here this morning, we must be sure that we are coming to Jesus on the basis of our faith and not on the basis of our merit. We must come to Jesus on the basis of our faith and not on the basis of our merit. You see, the God's people, the Israelite people, they always came to God on the basis of their merit, on the basis of their performance, their adherence to God's law. And yet Jesus here looks outside of God's people, looks outside of anyone who would have merit. And he sees the centurion who's pleading on behalf of his servant. And he says, there is where I find great faith. So first, let's see what this passage illustrates to us about the nature of faith. What does it mean to have faith in God? And we'll also go back to 2 Kings and the story we read there to see what the story of Naaman also illustrates for us about the nature of faith and how it's so contrary to our fleshly way of thinking that we must have works in order to be approved before God. So in the story of the centurion, we indeed notice that he was a decent man, right? He had a servant who was sick. And I would expect that most people in those days who had servants, or in reality you could also translate this word slave, most people who had slaves or servants in these days did not care very much about their slaves. If one got sick and died, 
Well, they would just replace him with another, especially if they were a soldier and they were able to force whoever to serve them who they wanted. And so we see that this man was a decent man. And yet when he calls upon Jesus, we notice a couple things in particular about his call. So first notice in verse in verse 3 of chapter 7, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. What we have in verse 3 is a beautiful picture of simply childlike faith. The centurion just heard the story about a man who could heal. And instead of questioning or instead of offering all these different explanations for maybe how this man is doing it or, you know, maybe he's a charlatan or maybe he's playing tricks on people somehow, maybe people are being deceived. Instead of going down any of those routes, he simply believes. He hears about this man, Jesus, and he believes that Jesus can do all that he has heard that Jesus can do. Beloved, this is a, an encouragement to us, a, an exhortation for us. Do we believe Jesus' power in the same way that the centurion believed in Jesus' power? When we read all that Jesus did in the pages of the New Testament, when we look at the history of the church and how Jesus has worked in people throughout history, do we just believe that God really has done all of those things? Or do we question, do we remain skeptical? Wondering if it's really true, if God can do those sort of things. So the first thing we see in the example of the centurion is this need to simply believe in the power of God, to believe in the power of Jesus. Again, beloved, I confess that I here am so often skeptical of what God can do. Or I'll think, you know, I know you can do that sort of thing, God, but I just, I'm not really sure you want to do it for me. And again, look at the example of the centurion who even for his slave who is sick believes that Jesus will hear this request and he will answer. The centurion believes that God is good, that God is powerful. And so he sends this request to Jesus that Jesus would come to him. But that's not the only thing that we notice about the centurion's faith. We also notice that the centurion sees himself as puny or as unworthy as compared to God. Again, in verse 6, it says that Jesus went with these messengers. And then it says, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion saw how small he was in light of God's power, in light of this man, Jesus Christ, who is doing these miraculous deeds all around. And then verse 7 says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's because of these things that, again, when Jesus marveled, and he turns to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so in this example, the centurion, we see just two beautiful realities about the nature of faith. We see first that faith is something that simply 
believes God for what God has done and for what God says. And it's also something that knows that we are not worthy of God. That we humble ourselves before God. Now, I love the way that the story of Naaman illustrates this reality. And so in 2 Kings chapter 5, again, we have this great Gentile warrior named Naaman. He was a Syrian. He was not part of the people of God. He was not an Israelite. And yet he was sick. And he had a servant tell him about the power of the God of Israel. And so he believes that the God of Israel does have this power and he goes and he travels with all this wealth, no doubt, to pay whoever it is that would heal him. And then he comes to Elijah, the man who would heal him. And it says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, sorry, I'm reading in 2 Kings 5, verse 8, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So notice first that Elijah sent a messenger to Naaman. So this is almost exactly like the story that we have in Luke chapter 7, where all this interaction with the centurion was simply by way of messengers. So Elijah sends a messenger to Naaman the Syrian. And he tells him to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And he says that if you go and wash, then you will be healed. Now notice Naaman's initial response. And this is very different from the response of the centurion in Luke chapter 7. It says, But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now, beloved, this is just the perfect illustration of the response of the human heart to this call for faith. When God says that you can be saved, you can be healed by believing in Jesus Christ alone, our flesh wants to stand there enraged and say, what? By faith alone? I thought, surely you would give me some great work to do. Surely you would recognize my own power, what I can offer, and surely you would ask me to offer it in order that I might be healed, in order that I might be saved. And yet God has none of it. Notice how in the heart of Naaman, he is first disgusted that this prophet Elisha would not even come out and see him. And so his pride tells him, Elisha, you should at least come out and acknowledge me. I am a great warrior of Syria. He came with a letter from the king, and yet this prophet who has no title is not willing to come out and acknowledge him. And second, we see that he is enraged because Elisha does not have some great ritual to perform. 
Right? He thinks Elisha should come out and call upon God and wave his hands and then some great miracle be done. And then he would be healed. He wants God to work according to his standards rather than looking to God to set his own standards. And then lastly, he's enraged because he is told to go and wash in the Jordan River. And he considers the Jordan to be a filthy river compared to the rivers of his own hometown. And so he is pride about where he is from. Oftentimes we have pride about how we have been raised, what our parents have taught us. And we don't want to release those things in order to submit to God. We think that God must somehow conform to the way we have been raised, what we have already been told. That God must somehow acknowledge us for our own goodness, for our own greatness. And you can see how this is the exact opposite of the heart of faith. It demands that we perform. It demands that God meet our expectations rather than being willing to surrender completely and just say, God, I am at your mercy. I will do whatever you say. Whether you regard me highly or not, I am yours. And indeed, in the story of Naaman, we see that he turned and went away. But then in verse 13, it says, But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So in this moment, Naaman realizes that as angry as he is, that there is no great work that he can perform in order to win his cleansing. As angry as he is, that it seems like God is not acknowledging his own greatness and his own power. He realizes that the prophet has actually spoken to him something quite simple to do, namely just to go down to the river and wash. And so in verse 14, it says, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So, beloved, we can see the beautiful result of turning to the Lord in faith. Of not relying on our own pride, of not relying on our own wisdom, of not saying that God must do things our way. Of simply saying, Lord, if all you want me to do is have faith in you, then that is what I will do. It may not be impressive, it may not make me feel really special, but if this is your way, Lord, I will do it. And beloved, this is what is so remarkable about Jesus being amazed by the faith of this centurion. Is that the centurion had not performed any great work. He had not kept God's law in every last respect. Indeed, he could not. He was not even allowed to go into the temple courts because he was a Gentile. He had no need of keeping the laws of cleanliness or the food laws because he was not circumcised as a Jew. He could not keep these laws of God. And yet Jesus says that if you will believe in me, if you have faith in me as this centurion has faith in me, then you will know me. 
then I will open myself to you. And so, beloved, what this means, and this is what we see as the New Testament goes on, what this means is that salvation is no longer limited to the Jews. Salvation is no longer limited simply to those who can perform the law of God, but salvation is open to all because salvation is on the basis of faith alone. Salvation does not require any performance from us. It does not require us to jump through any hoops, keep any laws of God. It simply requires faith like this centurion had, like Naaman had, when we are willing to humble ourselves. We are willing to let go of our own standards and our own expectations and say, Lord, whatever it is that you would have me to do, that is what I will do, God. And when we do that, beloved, we can be cleansed. And so that brings us now to Acts chapter 10, where we see this story of another centurion. And of course, Peter the apostle has walked with Jesus for many years. Peter has been baptized in the Spirit of God. And yet, he also knows the Old Testament very well, and he knows that the Old Testament is God's Word. And so, as he looks at the salvation of the Gentiles, he doesn't see how it's possible. As he reads through the Old Testament, he sees that for everyone who wants to come to God, they must be circumcised, they must be able to go into the temple, they must keep all of these laws that have been written down in the Old Testament. And so God gives Peter this vision where all this food, all these different kinds of animals comes down on the sheet. And Peter at first rejects it and says, no God, I would never eat any of those things. You can hear how Peter himself is still so concerned with his performance. He's so concerned with Conformity to the law of God is a means of salvation. In verse 14 of Acts 10, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And God says that I have made all things clean. And Peter is still perplexed, but then he gets this word, again, another messenger from a Gentile warrior a messenger from this centurion, and he goes to see Cornelius. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius. He preaches that Jesus of Nazareth, this is at the end of chapter 10 in verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And so Peter proclaims this good news to the centurion, saying that Jesus has done what we ourselves could not do. Jesus has kept the law where we could not keep the law. Jesus has healed where we were powerless to heal. Jesus died where we deserved to die. And then Jesus 
was raised from the dead. And he appeared to us. And in this, God demonstrates his power. He demonstrates that what he has done is true so that all we must do now is believe in this message of Jesus Christ. And you can be saved. And so this is the very reason why, beloved, the gospel no longer simply goes to the Jews, but why it went to the Romans, why it went to all the Gentiles. And it is the reason why for us today, beloved, we must be careful to guard against any sense of superiority in the least, against any sense that that we somehow in our religiosity have a leg up on anyone else who would want to come to God. Beloved, the person who we meet on the street tomorrow, if we were to share the gospel with them, and if they were to put their faith in that gospel, if they were to really believe that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose again from the dead, they would be saved and they would be as near to God as anyone who has spent their entire life inside the walls of a church. Beloved, we all come to God on level ground. None of us here is righteous. None of us here can have any pride before God. None of us can perform our way into heaven. We all come to God on one basis and one basis alone. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. And beloved, because that grace is free, because Jesus paid it all, again, we have no reason to boast. And we welcome everyone else who comes and we share this message generously, knowing that God is able to save all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we ourselves have faith in God that he will open hearts and he will change lives. Again, not because of the goodness of other people, but because of the power of God. And so, beloved, I encourage you this morning, I exhort you to be like the centurion in Luke chapter 7. Believe that God can heal. Believe that he can save just the way the centurion saved. And if you believe that, how can you not be filled with optimism, filled with joy as you look to the future, knowing that the power of God is active in our world today? And as you believe that, don't take any pride in your status before God? Don't take any pride that you have been a Christian for X number of years or you know X amount about the Bible? No, take pride in this one thing alone, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and He has made you free. With that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that you have opened this way of salvation to us, Lord, that is not based upon our birth, not based upon what we have done, not based upon how smart we are, how good-looking we are, how much money we make, where we live. God, but it is based on this one reality alone, whether we will believe you and whether we will humble ourselves before you. And so, God, would you help us, I pray, to believe you? Would you help us to humble ourselves before you? Lord, we are a people who are filled with pride. Lord, when we wake up in the morning, our default 
is to trust in our own goodness, to trust in our own strength. It is not to look to you with eyes of faith. So again, Lord, would you have mercy? Would you help us to remember that we are acceptable to you on the basis of Christ alone? And so in this, God, may we rejoice. And because of this, may we joyfully spread this good news far and wide, Lord, knowing that there is none who is outside the boundaries of your grace. There is none who is outside your power to heal because you do it on the basis of humble faith alone. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.